like I said this morning, this meeting isn't happening because we've been told by many people, and if you've been, if you're kind of new to the doctrines of grace or Calvinism or Reformed theology or Augustinianism or whatever you call what you now have seen in the Bible that you never saw before, but it's on every page. Well, people say, well, if you believe that stuff, then, you, then you're going to kill evangelism and you're going to kill missions. It's just that plain and simple. And so I wanted to go to the fount of all missions killers, John Calvin. And uh, I thought, boy, if there's ever a person who this guy can't be any good. I mean, if you look at his pictures, he just looks kind of like he needs a nap and he needs to eat a little bit more meat. And um, he just doesn't look like a happy camper. If you look at these old pictures and books of what people look like, and if you had to sit for 6 to 16 hours to have someone paint your picture, I think I probably wouldn't look very happy either. But anyway, um, Calvin doesn't bring to some people's minds the idea of, of missions. In fact, it brings just the opposite, that if you believe the stuff that John Calvin saw in Scripture, you're on your way to being seriously messed up and you're going to be lost to the kingdom. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ from 1970 to 1977, and I had friends who became Calvinist, and it's like, oh, they are lost to the kingdom. I mean, it's like they became JWs or something. It's like they're of no use to anybody now. Thank you. Some of you got that. Um, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, a good passage to look at whenever you have a historical study. Hebrews chapter 13. Hear the Word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So you're to think back to leaders in the Christian church, leaders who have led you. Think about, consider means think about, ponder the outcome of their way of life. How did the way they lived end up? Did they seem to have God's blessing on their life or not? Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It doesn't say imitate everything they did, but imitate their trusting God, their believing God's promises. And then the climax is in verse 8. Why can we look to historical figures? Why can, why can we learn from Moses or David or Daniel or one of the apostles? Why can we learn from Augustine or Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or, in today's case, John Calvin? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God doesn't get old. God doesn't change. He's not gotten slightly senile. Like I said yesterday morning, I graduated from high school in 1966. And for some of you, that's like, man, that's like the olden times. That's like the old days. I said the earth's crust had just hardened so you could get out and walk on it. And uh, for some people, you know, you age. I mean, when I was 22, I was a world beater. And I could go out and do stuff and hurt myself or pull something and get a good night's sleep. And the next day, you're back at it. At 65, I wake up and go, why do I want to get out of bed? You know, uh, it's, I'm here already. Might as well stay here. No. But the idea is you get older. We're creatures. God made us. We're dependent on Him. And we slowly age. And because of the curse of God upon the whole planet, we're all going to die. 
we're all going to die. From the sweetest children in here to the oldest person, it's probably me, we're all going to die. But God never ages. Not God never gets old. I've had relatives who have, who have Alzheimer's and dementia. God doesn't have Alzheimer's or dementia. The cross is as fresh as if it happened 30 seconds ago to him. He's the God of Daniel and his three friends in the fiery furnace. He's the God of David being chased by Saul. He's the God of Peter preaching the gospel of, at Pentecost. He's the God of Augustine in the 5th century and of Martin Luther in the 1500s and of John Calvin in the 1500s and Charles Spurgeon in the 1900s and Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 20th century, and he's your God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's still God. He'll always be God to the praise of his glory. Now, why chose John Calvin when I was asked, can you think of a historical person in our Reformed tradition who has something to do with missions? I said, well, let's go with John Calvin. And most people would say, well, that's kind of a foolish task because we all know he wasn't interested in missions. You can read books. You can listen to speakers. Uh, some of the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention have come out and attacked the historical doctrines, the Reformed doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. They say that it hinders evangelism. It's logically, logically anti-missionary. If you believe this junk, it's against missions. One man called it doctrine of dunghills. That wasn't very gracious. And for these critics to believe in the biblical doctrines of election and predestination, that if God didn't initiate saving people and carry it through to the end, nobody would be saved. They say, if you believe that junk, then you have to be against missions and evangelism. But the truth is just the opposite. If God isn't God, then nobody can be saved. We saw yesterday morning in our time together looking at what the Bible says is, what, did the human condition, what happened to the human condition when our first parents fell into sin? Well, we all got blasted. We were all in the front row. We all got the full dose. It's like we're at Los Alamos when they blew up the first atomic bomb, and you see pictures of what it did to some of the, some of the um, viewing shacks. It just blew everything away, and it was a much bigger explosion than they thought. Well, when sin exploded on the scene, all of us have come back and we tested positive plus, plus, plus for sin. We're all dying of sin. And if God isn't a God of mercy and grace, if God really doesn't intervene in people's lives, and yesterday I purposely chose the word supernatural. Do you know what the word supernatural means? It means, it means above nature. It's both supranatural and supernatural. God really exists. Christ really became a man. He really rose from the dead. He really went back to heaven. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. Christ and the Father said, I've come to save these people the Father's given to me. I secured their salvation. Now you, Holy Spirit, have at it. And working through the church, bring all these people to a saving knowledge of Christ. If God didn't take the initiative, nobody would be saved. If God wasn't a God of mercy and grace, nobody would be saved. Well, sad to say, you can listen to the president of Southwestern Seminary, Paige Patterson, Dr. Norman Geisler. Some of you may have heard of his name. He's a theologian and writes books of apologetics. Dave Hunt, who's a cult watcher. William Estep used to teach Anabaptist church history at Southwestern Seminary and write books. All of these men have had very harsh and critical things to say against the doctrines of grace and said that John Calvin has done this terrible job during the time of the Great Awakening, John Wesley said they were doctrines of demons. 
And if you believe this stuff, it kills churches. Well, that wasn't very gracious. If you've been out very long as a believer who's seen the doctrines of grace and you start talking to people, you'll have people say similar things or worse than that to you. They may actually get in your face. Well, what I want to do in our time together is two things. Since John Calvin is supposed to have invented Calvinism, which he didn't, and he got it from some of the medieval theologians who also got it from Augustine, and Augustine got it from Paul and Jesus, it has all of its origins in the Scripture. God himself is the one who, in revealed Scripture, shows us that he is a God who plans everything out and that he secures his plan and it surely will succeed and nothing will thwart it and nobody will be missing before his throne that Christ came to save. Nobody. And if you're to be saved at all, your only hope is to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. And he's not a hard guy. He says, if you come to me, I will not push you away. You know, sometimes even our parents can be hard or friends or teachers or coaches or other people can be hard, but Christ is not hard or harsh. Do you know what the phrase going off on someone means? Stop it! No one in this room has ever felt the back of Christ's hand. No one in this room has ever had Christ go off on him. And tell you, I've sinned, and I've done some really stupid things as a Christian, and I have never once felt the harshness of Christ. I've been chastened and disciplined, but I've never felt the harshness of Christ. He's never gone off on me. And if you entrust yourself to Christ, you will never guarantee it. He is the best friend a sinner could ever have. Well, I, I wanted to show you today in, in the person who's considered the, the most terrible of all Calvinists, John Calvin himself, and show you, okay, what did he teach? What did John Calvin believe about evangelism and missions? Should we do it? Should we not do it? Should we only do a little bit of it? What did John Calvin believe and teach and preach and write about evangelism and missions? And then we know people who are really, they're gangbusters from the neck up. I mean, they talk a mean game, but they never actually do anything. Did, did John Calvin do anything about evangelism and missions? Did he actually practice what he preached? So let's look at those things and see what we find out. I'll give you a heads up. He did and he did. Okay. First of all, what did Calvin teach about evangelism and missions? Well, he wrote a lot of stuff. He wrote this big, fat book of the basics of the Christian life, the institutes of the Christian religion. And some of you think, whoa, it's a big book. In fact, it's two volumes. That's a really big book. That's two books. And I don't read two-book things. I just read little paperbacks. But John Calvin is not rocket science to read. He's very warm. He's also really straightforward. Oh, okay, I see this. I mean, he's, he's much better than a lot of modern writers who you think, well, I'm just Joe Lehman and I don't know a whole lot and I probably couldn't understand the great man. Trust me, he's a great man because he writes where you can understand him. Well, his big two-volume Institutes of the Christian Religion, listen to some of the things he says. The gospel must be preached to the masses, resulting in the salvation of God's elect and the hardening of the non-elect. The gospel needs to be preached to everyone. We don't know who God's going to save. He has his elect people up there, out there, and you can't tell. You can't lift up their hearing. Ah, there's an E on their forehead. That means they're elect, so I can talk to them. Or there's a P over here behind their ear, and that means they're predestined. We have no way of telling who God's elect are until they repent and believe and come to Christ. And after the fact, we go, aha, here's one of God's people because they repented and believed, and only the elect repent and believe. Well, he said that we need to preach the gospel to all the masses resulting in the salvation of God's elect. And in the process, those who aren't elect will just one more sin to add to all their other sins. They harden their hearts and turn off. 
Because no man knows who God is going to save, the gospel must be preached to everyone so that God might draw his elect to himself. He said we should preach the gospel to everyone. We should preach the gospel to the masses. There are people who are called hyper-Calvinists. You know what hyper means? Like one of your friends had too much sugar and caffeine. And they go, man, you're hyper. Okay? Well, hyper means not just excited and ramped up, but it means way beyond what you should be. And a hyper-Calvinist is a person who goes beyond Scripture and teaches things beyond what Reformed people or Calvin or whoever your model is, what the Scriptures teach about this. Hyper-Calvinists teach God isn't interested uh, in having the gospel proclaimed. He's a real Scrooge. And you need to have some sense of if this person is hopefully elect before you might broach the gospel to them. But if you don't have a sense that you're hopefully elect, I can't talk to you. You would never talk to a crowd and tell people that Jesus Christ says that if you come to him, he will not turn away. He commands all men everywhere to repent, and he invites you to come, and if you come, he will receive you, and he will save you. They would say, no, you shouldn't do that. There might be non-elect people who would come and mess up their theology. I don't know. But they don't say that. That was kind of snide. I'm sorry. Uh, They would say that you shouldn't do that, that you should only preach the gospel to the hopefully elect. That's not what Calvin's view was. And the view that I've always entertained since I came to see the doctrines of grace in Scripture, I didn't read Calvin for several years after I came to see the doctrines of grace, but the Scripture says the gospel is to be preached to all, and God draws who he wants. Calvin wrote many commentaries. He wrote commentaries on most of the books of the Bible. He didn't do Revelation. He said, don't know what John's saying there. Didn't get finished with Ezekiel. Uh, but here in Micah, for example, chapter 2, he says, The kingdom of Christ was only begun in the world when God commanded the gospel to be everywhere proclaimed. And as of this time, meaning 1559, its course is not as yet complete. Now, why is that important? Some people say that the, the, that the Great Commission, the preaching of the gospel to the whole world, was only given to the apostles and not to churches, not even to pastors, some would say, and certainly not to individuals. And Calvin said, well, he commanded the gospel, Christ commanded the gospel to be preached everywhere, and at this time it hasn't been completed. It's not just the apostles preaching, and it isn't a done deal. Some people said, well, the the gospel reached the world in the first century and we don't have to worry about it. That wasn't Calvin's view. It's still the responsibility of the churches to fulfill the Great Commission. In 1 Timothy 2.4, there is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation because, because God wishes that the gospel should be proclaimed to all without exception. That's pretty clear. He's not saying that everybody's going to be saved, but he is saying the gospel needs to be proclaimed to everybody so that God's elect have an opportunity to hear the saving message which they will be drawn to. In a, he goes on in the, in the next sentence, he says, The Christian's duty is to be solicitous. Solicitous means kind and sensitive and to scratch where you're itching. It's the Christian's duty to be solicitous and to do our endeavor, to do our duty for the salvation of all of whom God has included in his calling. He says in verse 5, he says, You offend and you insult God. He's speaking about Christians. Christians offend and insult God who by their opinion shut out any person from the hope of salvation. You and I have no idea who God is going to save. And you and I insult God and saying, 
well, that person's too far gone. You know, some forms of total depravity are more total than others. And this person is beyond the pale of God's grace. That's not true. And in fact, from other people's point of view, many of us in this room would have been viewed by other folks as saying, that sucker is too far gone. You're never going to see them come to Christ. And here we are today. It's an insult to God to shut out any person from the hope of salvation. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, Calvin comments, If the gospel is not preached, Jesus Christ is, as it were, still buried. Therefore, let us stand up as witnesses and do Him this honor. When we see all the world so far from the way of salvation, let us remain steadfast in this wholesome doctrine. Let us here observe that St. Paul condemns our ingratitude. If we're so unfaithful to God as not to bear witness of His gospel, remembering that He has called us to do it, I mean, how much more clear can it be? He says that if, we, if you and I don't tell people about Christ, it's like Christ stayed in the tomb and He didn't rise from the dead, and there's no salvation. I mean, how can we keep quiet? In his commentary on Ezekiel, which he was not able to finish, but before he died in chapter 18, verse 23, his comments is this, God certainly desires nothing more than for those who are perishing and rushing toward death to return to the way of safety. This is why the gospel is today proclaimed throughout the world, for God wished to testify to all the ages that he is greatly inclined to pity. And what's the verse he's commenting on? God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but they would turn from their sins and live. God's not there relishing hands going, oh, another one, look at this. Where's more going in hell? This is wonderful. God help you if you think that. God help me if I think that. God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and live. Does that mean that God isn't going to consign anybody to eternal condemnation? No, it's not saying that. But He doesn't relish it. He doesn't delight in it. It isn't the happiest part of His day to perform judgment. Judgment is God's strange work, some theologians have said. His normal work is to have mercy. God certainly desires nothing more than for those who are perishing and rushing toward death to return to the way of safety. This is why the gospel is today proclaimed throughout the world, for God wished to testify to all the ages that he is greatly inclined to pity. He has pity on sinners. Remember this morning I said, Jesus Christ, friend of sinners. Years ago when I was playing football, and yes, I I wore a face mask. Uh, When I played football, one of the things that would happen to you is you get the wind knocked out of you. And if you've ever been played a sport or done something and the wind's knocked out of you, one moment you're functioning, and the next moment you're laying with your face and the dirt going, uh, 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 and your teammates are going, man, are you okay? Uh, uh, uh. Somebody better get the trainer. So the other guys just stand there and ask you if you're okay, and you're laying there in the dirt, sucking grass. And suddenly, there's a man who puts his face down in the dirt next to you and tries to see your face and see you through the helmet, are you okay? Did you get the wind that knocked out of you acknowledged by this because you can't breathe to say anything? He puts his face down in the dirt so he can make sure he's being sensitive to me. What did God do to make sure he was being sensitive to us? He became a man. And he lived a worse life than any of us have ever lived. And to show that he loved us and to be perfect in his obedience before he died an atoning death for our sins. God is a God of great pity. He doesn't delight in the death of sinners. He will judge them if they don't turn from their sins. But He's a God of great pity. And that should have great encouragement to us because we should be people who are full of pity. 
If you ever see or hear yourself saying, how do people do things like that? Whoa. Do you know your own heart? Do you know what the Bible says about sin? I mean, we're all should be very thankful that we're not worse off than we are. And to go around with a judgmental attitude, look at those people. I can't believe people would act like that. Well, we did. Or if you didn't get caught, it was in your head. And God knows what was in your head. He go on to read more sections of his commentaries. Many other things could be cited. But one student of Calvin's view of missions, I think, said this very well. He said, missions was not a section of his big, fat, systematic theology book. It was central to what he was trying to accomplish in his whole ministry. It wasn't a subset of, here's 47 important things to know about the Bible. It permeated all that he was and did in ministry. It's seeing the gospel go out. Finally, Calvin wrote a book, The Eternal Predestination of God. God has a plan. Do you know what the word predestination means? It means to mark off the end destination and every single solitary molecule and event and plan and thought leading up to the fulfillment of that plan. You know, you can buy a AAA triptych and it says, here's everything you need to do between here and Albuquerque. And you just follow it and you get there. Your plan is almost predestined because you want to go to Albuquerque and you know what? You drove to Albuquerque. You predestined things kind of, sort of. Well, God does it perfectly. Nothing ever thwarts Him. He never has a, oh, we should have stopped in Tucumcari. No, he never has second thoughts. He never has, oh, I shouldn't have done this or I should have done this. He's never stymied by lack of information. He's never thwarted by things coming against him that would make us, i got a flat tire, I'm not going to make it. He's totally wise, he's totally sovereign, and he's holy, holy, holy. In his thoughts of us, he's never even tempted to think a sinful thought about us and His plan for our lives. So when He predestinates our life, He says, I want you to make it to heaven. I'm sending My Son for you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to regenerate you, to unite you to Christ. You will make it because I'm working in your soul and I'm seeing to it that everything necessary to get you to heaven is going to come to pass. Bar none. Nothing is going to keep God from, and is going to frustrate God from fulfilling His plans to save His elect. And so in the eternal predestination of God, this is what Calvin says. Since we do not know who belongs to the number of the predestined and who does not, it benefits us so to feel to wish that everyone could be saved. So it will come about that whenever, whoever we come across, we shall study. We don't use that phrase anymore. To study something means let's think about how I'm going to do this. We shall study to make him or her a sharer of gospel peace. Even severe rebuke will be administered like medicine, lest they should perish or cause others to perish. But it will not be for God to make it effective, but it will be for God to make it effective in those whom He foreknew and predestined. In other words, I need to talk to everybody. And sometimes I even need to ramp it up and say, I was talking to a student one time and he was from California, and I had lived in California. And he was saying, oh, God's this giant negatively charged thing in space and the earth is positively charged. And these rays go back and forth. And I sat there. I was really good. I listened for several minutes. And he got through. And I said, can I say something to you respectfully? That's the biggest bunch of hooey I've ever heard in my life. And I said, I don't think you really believe it. You just picked it up somewhere and you're just blowing me off. That has nothing to do with reality. It's just a bunch of hooey. And it's like I took my Coke and threw it in his face. He goes, really? 
Now, why did I rebuke him? Well, you're just mean, Pastor Martin. I would never say that. I just let him go to hell. Well, no, you wouldn't say that, but I wouldn't want to offend him. But if a person's on his way to hell, we say, excuse me, I hate to bother you here. I'm interrupting you, but you're going to hell. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No. At times, we need to risk their rejection, saying, okay, I know you don't like this, but I'm loving enough, I love you enough to tell you something you don't want to hear. I love George Whitfield. He would preach to thousands of men before they went to work, and he'd be there at 5 o'clock in the morning when they went in the factory or the coal mine. And he'd be preaching to them, and he'd be crying. And he goes, it's not manly to cry in England, but if you're too foolish to cry that you're going to hell, is it okay if I cry for you? Because I get it, even though you don't. That's a godly rebuke. And here's a man who's willing to cry in public out of compassion for your soul, even if you're too clueless to have compassion on yourself. Ray Van Nest is a New Testament theologian who teaches at at Union University in Tennessee. And he points out about this quote from Calvin. He said, Our evangelism is not to be a half-hearted effort. Christians are to use even severe rebuke, if necessary, to prevent others from ignoring the gospel and perishing. Christians must make the effort to evangelizing and knowing that only God in the end is going to save. And I've had to do that. I've had to tell people that I loved, I know that you don't like to hear this, and I'm not saying it in a mean way, but you're a fool, and you're going to die in your sins if you don't come to Christ. I didn't say that mean, and I didn't attack them as if they were stupid or something, but I just said, you're being morally foolish to ignore Christ. I care that you go to hell. I care that you're missing the way of salvation. That's what Calvin says. doesn't sound like hyper-Calvinist to me. A fourth point is Calvin taught that, and this is a point you can miss because if you read a lot of his stuff, he's not always talking about missions and evangelism in the contemporary sense. Sometimes he talks about the spread of Christ's kingdom all over the world. Christ is a great Savior. He's come to establish the kingdom of God. How do I know that? John 3, unless a man is born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. I say you must be born again unless a man is born of water and of the Spirit. He shall not see the kingdom of God. I've come to bring people to a saving relationship with my Father, to give them the new birth. And and then when this happens, they're entering the kingdom of God out of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. Well, Calvin talks a lot about Christ's kingdom and the extension of Christ's kingdom and how we need to see Christ's kingdom spread all over the world by evangelism. And so the marker that you can look for sometimes is not missions and evangelism, but he'll talk about the spread of Christ's kingdom and more and more people coming to Christ. In Psalm 2, Isaiah 49, which I preached on this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, if you read his remarks, he's all excited and amped up about this whole idea of seeing the kingdom of Christ spread by more and more people coming to Christ. Listen as he writes... In the, in the preface to his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he des- dedicates it to King Francis I of, of France. And he would write to kings and queens and evangelize them and said, I'm sure you're going to want to read this book. It's full of the gospel. It'd be good for your soul. Okay? This is what he says to King Francis. God the Father has appointed Christ to rule from sea to sea and from the rivers even to the ends of the earth. So you're going to want to get on board and you're probably going to want to lead your nation to get on board. Well, that didn't happen. King Francis was more concerned about King Francis than he was King Jesus. But Calvin's concern was to see the kingdom of Christ spread. 
In Acts chapter 2, that's the chapter where the Holy Spirit is poured out in the stunning display of power. Imagine going from, how many people we have here this morning, 150? Okay, let's say, and suddenly, you know, Nick preaches this dynamite service sermon, the Holy Spirit falls down, and next week you've got 3,000 people in the parking lot trying to cram in. And you all get to be Bible study teachers because you've been a Christian at least six months, so you can teach the Bible because you've got all these people coming. Well, what, what about in Acts 2? This is what Calvin says. He says that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost came, that the Holy Spirit came to enable the gospel to reach the ends of the extremity of the world. God wants His grace to be known to all the world, and He has commanded that His gospel be preached to all creatures. We must, as much as we're able, to seek the salvation of those today who are still strangers to the faith. Doesn't sound anti-evangelistic or anti-missions to me. I could multiply other examples of where he's talking about the spread of Christ's kingdom and people being evangelized to come into Christ's kingdom, but he talks about missions and evangelism and the spread of Christ's kingdom. All is kind of synonymous. I don't want to multiply examples. That gets old. But let me close with one example of what Calvin uh, taught. This morning you had an order of service, and the technical term for that is a liturgy. And from time to time you'll have responsive readings. You might have a reading. You'd all say together. You see the songs on the overhead. You sing them together. Calvin would have prayers and things that his people would say in the service. This is a, this is a prayer that Calvin wrote for his liturgy in Geneva. We pray to you, O most gracious God and merciful Father, for all people everywhere, as it is your will to be acknowledged as the Savior of the whole world, through the redemption accomplished by your Son, Jesus Christ, would you grant that those who are still alienated from this knowledge of Christ, still being in the darkness and captivity of error and ignorance, may they be brought to the illumination of your Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel to the right way of salvation, which is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you've sent. That's what they would pray on the Lord's Day. That's an evangelistic, great commission, kingdom-building prayer. Well, I think the point's made without multiplying examples that John Calvin at least taught that we ought to be engaged in seeing others come to Christ. He wasn't against evangelism and even the, the doctrines of God's sovereignty. The sovereign God has, procl- has proclaimed and He has deemed that through the use of means... Remember this morning we talked about Romans chapter 10. Quick quiz. Who remembers what two chapters is Romans 10 come between? Okay, good. Nick, Romans 9 and 11. I'm actually this way at home when I'm, when I'm with my wife, too, so it's just kind of the way I am. Anyway, so you have the two sobering, scary almost chapters on the sovereignty of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I can bypass you and harden you and leave you in the dust if I want to. <gasps> oh, God, please, don't pass me by. In the middle of that is the longest section on the fact that God wants His church his Christians, his ministers, every believer to take the gospel out. And he says, they're not going to believe unless someone tells them. And someone's not going to tell them unless they they go. And they're not going to go unless they're sent. And we have to get this and we have to see it as a people of God and be engaged in it. So Calvin believed in missions. And we're going to see that Calvin practiced missions. So first point, what did John Calvin practice in missions and evangelism? John Calvin preached every day of the week. During the cold winter months, 
he would preach at 6 o'clock in the morning before guys went to work. And when the summer came, it was a little bit warmer, he'd preach at 5 o'clock in the morning, which means you have to get up pretty early if you're going to be preaching at that hour. He did it five days a week, and then he preached on Saturday, and then he preached a couple times on Sunday. And he was always interweaving the gospel in all these sermons that he was giving as he's going through books of the Bible because we have all of his sermons and we have all of his commentaries and he's taking them, his people through all the books of the Bible. And it was the, the job of the, of the pastors, the multiple pastors in Geneva, that they're preaching the gospel every day out there, every day. Imagine going to work and you see somebody out there preaching the gospel every day. That's what they did. So without going into all the details... I think right there it shows by his faithful preaching every day that he was committed to seeing people come to Christ because how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? Calvin says, I'm out there seven days a week telling them. Number two, Calvin trains scores. Twenty people is a score. Multiple scores is, well, we probably actually trained hundreds of religious refugees who came to Geneva for refuge. They got the gospel. They got the truth. They got the Reformed faith. They got a backbone. And they took the Reformation home to their home country. You know, you can feel like you've got a sock for a backbone, but you take a steel rod and you push it up a sock and suddenly you've got a backbone. And the Reformed faith will give you a backbone. I don't care who these people are and I don't care what they've done. My God is greater and I'm going to take the gospel back to my home country. Religious refugees from all over Europe had descended upon Geneva and they would sit under his teaching for a while and they'd go, okay, we've calmed down, we've come to our senses, we owe it to our home country to go back and see what we can be for Christ back there. So people from France went back to France. People from England, from Wales went back there. Scotland, Holland, Belgium, Hungary, Poland, Italy all took the gospel back to their home countries, eager to plant gospel churches. So not only did he practice it every day, but in his just preaching the gospel to all the people in front of him and tr training them, a whole lot of laymen got excited and went home and said, we're going to try to live for Christ back in our home country. Number three, Calvin trained hundreds of men, not six, not 50, hundreds of men to be preachers and pastors back in France and to preach the gospel and establish gospel churches. He was so committed in seeing the gospel in his home country. He was from France, but he fled persecution and ended up in Geneva got in trouble with the authorities there, moved to Strasbourg for a couple of years. The authorities in Geneva said, we're sorry, we were wrong, come back. So he was just enjoying a quiet life and goes back to this really busy, hectic, pressure-packed place of Geneva, which was, would swell with religious refugees from all over Europe, and they would come to his church and other churches, and they'd preach to them. Between two and 300 men were trained by Calvin personally as missionary church planners to go back into France. It's estimated that up to one-third of these men were martyred upon their return to France, and they knew that was a good chance. They knew they had a good chance of being martyred. To be martyred is to be killed for witnessing for Christ. In fact, the Greek word for witness is the word martyr. But you witness to the point of even giving your life to testify about Christ. You're a double, in a sense, martyr with a capital M. One-third of these 300 men were martyred when they went back to France to preach the gospel. But this is what God did under these missionary church planners. It's amazing. In 1555, which is in the middle of all what's going on in the Reformation, there were five Protestant churches underground 
doesn't mean they're beneath the ground. It means they were unofficial churches. You had to meet quietly. Like we saw this morning, there was this, an un, this was an underground church meeting that Mark was teaching at, and these underground churches were not legal churches. The government didn't have their hooks into these churches, and so you had to be very careful what you're doing. There were only five Protestant churches. They were underground churches in France in 1555. Four years later, there's a hundred Protestant churches scattered all over France. In 1562, a mere seven years later, there's 2,151 churches with more than three million people in attendance on the Lord's Day. A third of the men he trained gave their lives. An explosion of people coming to Christ and coming to the Reformed faith happened. But the interesting thing about Calvin was he wasn't like some seminary professors or Bible college teachers can be. They'll give you the goods in class and they'll turn and leave and that's all you're going to get out of them. I mean, they don't give themselves to you. They just kind of back the truck up and and then suddenly all the information slides down and you put it in your notebook in my day or you put it in your hard drive today and then they leave. In the Reformation archives, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of letters from John Calvin regarding his pastoral and practical advice to these men in establishing underground churches and how, what to do and what to avoid and how to talk to these kind of people and how to deal with these problem situations. He just didn't send out missionaries. He'd invested the rest of his life. I mean, letter writing is tedious. That's why people really go, LOL. I can't possibly write laugh out loud or even call you LOL. I can spare that. Calvin would write letters, snail mail, hundreds and hundreds of letters because I care what happens to these guys. He not only trained men because he wanted to see the gospel preached in churches planted, but then he kept up with them and wrote them and received letters and wrote back. I think he backed his teaching with his life. A fourth illustration of how he walked the talk is churches that John Calvin helped plant decided when they heard that there was an opportunity to send foreign missionaries to to Brazil. Now, the question of foreign missions is, if if you didn't live in Savannah, if you lived in South Dakota, and if you're not a geography buff, South Dakota is a long way from the ocean, okay? 1,800, 2,000 miles from either ocean. So, and before the days of rapid transportation, to go to the ocean, you'd have to walk there or take a horse. And then when you get there, you have to hope that your nation had a fleet of ships that would actually take you somewhere. And the great seafaring powers of the day were Spain and Portugal, and they were Catholic, and they certainly didn't cotton to uh, Protestant missionaries. And England had a navy, but France didn't have much of a navy. But they heard that there was going to be an expedition to Brazil. And the Christians, the Calvinists, go, this is it. And so they talked to the man in charge of the expedition. We have a bunch of really competent people. This guy is a blacksmith and a preacher, and this guy makes shoes, and he's a preacher, and this lady is this, and she's a deacon's wife. And they had all these people come forward, and they were willing to leave France behind, take their kids, and they're going to go to Brazil. Now, they weren't going down there for Carnival, okay, at Rio. There was nothing in Brazil except Aborigines and Stone Age Indian with uh, pagan idolatry. And it was a very grim place, and it was worse than they thought. So when they got there, they were literally grossed out at how primitive the natives were. But they went. 
All the, all the Protestant, all the Reformed churches in France got excited about this. They were praying for them. They gave money and stuff. And Calvin is in Geneva saying, go get them. We're behind you. And they set off for Brazil. And they get to Brazil, and the head of the expedition says, well, let's stop here at an island a quarter of a mile off the coast. We don't want to overdo it right away. Let's kind of ease our way in. Well, things began to fall apart at that point. The natives were worse than they thought. The other Catholics on the voyage discovered these people were Protestants, and they weren't happy about that. And they didn't want to talk about religion all the time, and they didn't want to be converted. And so there was strife between the people who had come to settle this colony. And then the guy who was in charge of the whole thing said, you know, this isn't working out. I'm not going to make money. I'm just going to pull the plug on it. And depending on who you read, he either killed a couple of the Protestants or he simply sent them all back to France, the ones who were still surviving. Like a good church that sends out missionaries, the French Reformed churches under Calvin's leadership sat down to work to see, okay, what can we learn from this? How can we do better? Now, I didn't mention this this morning, but I could have. There were th- millions of prayers going into the salvation of the people in Brazil. And that wasn't God's timing. If you go to Brazil today, it's the most powerful Christian and missionary country in all of Latin America. And in fact, there are so many Reformed Christians there, they have 1,500 to 2,000 Reformed pastors meet at their giant pastors' conferences. And they're, perf- and they're creating Reformed Christian literature in Portuguese, which is the language of Brazil. The rest of South America is Spanish. Brazil is Portuguese. And they send literature back to Portugal because Portugal is way more lost than Brazil is. And God has honored the prayers of those millions of Frenchmen who were praying for the gospel to succeed in Brazil. But the timing was off, and now there's tens of millions of believers in Brazil and many, many, many Reformed congregations, thousands of them. One other final point. John Calvin encouraged the translation and publishing of the Bible into all the languages of the people of Europe. You know, God's, God knows what language you speak. Was it in the movie yesterday we saw that the people were shocked that God speaks our language? Remember that? Was it in the movie? Okay, that's right. Hey, they were watching those Jesus film in Nigeria, and they go, Hey, look, God knows our language. Well, somebody had to translate and dub in, but the point is people around the world want to know, does God speak to me in my language? Does he know how I talk? Can I read his word in my own tongue. So Calvin backed that. When John Calvin died in Geneva, there were 34 different publishing houses that published over 300,000 Bibles and Christian books every year. I'm committed to getting the gospel out, not just in sending people, but in producing literature and getting Bibles in the vernacular, everyday language of the people. Well, I told you at the beginning, I could save you a lot of time and say, he believed in evangelism and missions and he did it but I didn't want to multiply a bazillion references and bore you to tears. It's just a lie of the devil. In fact, when you hear of someone that you kind of respected and you hear all these terrible things about them, I'd sure check closely before you believe those lies because if, I, if, if the devil can smear John Calvin, then it'll make it harder for you to talk about these doctrines of grace or if he can smear anybody. And Calvin has been smeared down through the centuries, and Reformed Christianity has been been smeared as being anti-evangelistic, anti-missions, cold-hearted, just caring about doctrine and not caring about the souls of people. And to use the technical term, that's just hogwash. It's just a lie. It's not true. 
It was taught by Augustine. It's been taught by Calvin. It's been taught by all the Reformed heroes. The greatest evangelistic pastor in the history of the world was Charles Spurgeon, a Reformed Baptist. The greatest evangelist in history was George Whitfield. 25,000 people could hear him without amplification. He would boom out his voice. And Benjamin Franklin went to hear him in Philadelphia and got as far back as he could how many blocks away and hear Whitfield clearly. And then he went to side streets. We were all full of people. How far can I hear him clearly? And then estimate, what's the square footage in all this? Do your little geometry lesson here, get that out, and figure how much square feet these guys taken up. He said easily 25,000 people could hear George Whitfield preach. He preached 40-plus hours every week. He didn't work 40 hours. He preached 40 hours a week. He burned out at age 56. Charles Spurgeon burned out at age 56 preaching the gospel. And they had great confidence because, as we saw this morning, the Father has given the nations to His Son. And our God is a big God, and He has a heart of compassion. Jesus wept for sinners. On His way to being crucified, He sees some women weeping for Him. And He speaks to them and says, Women, don't weep for Me. Weep for yourself. If you don't turn from your sins, you'll be consumed in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem to come. I mean, in the, on the way to die, He's trying to witness to people before it's too late. Does that sound like a hard guy who's not interested in the souls of people? We have a great heritage in the Bible of the Reformed faith. And in church history... And the Bible teaches, and our Reformed church history teaches us that God wants us to take this good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, any sinner, anywhere, and can turn them into sons and daughters of God. And we need to be faithful to honor our God and take it wherever we can. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you've been gracious to us this weekend. We've been studying some of the most profound things that men and women can ever think. Other people worry about who liked them on Facebook, what the score of the game was today, what about this or what about that, but to be eternally loved by the God of the universe, the God who created everything, to be loved to the extent that He would give His Son for us, that He would give His Holy Spirit to indwell believers, that He would give us a book that tells us everything we need to know for life and happiness and eternal life. What a privilege it is to have this information, to have this knowledge of God. We pray that You would make us into a happy people who delight in our salvation ourselves, but the overflow of our life is just we can't keep it quiet. If someone gave us a new Maserati or a new Corvette, probably other people would hear about it. We've been given a greater gift than that. We've been given the Lord Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice, as our righteousness. Father, whether it's across the street or across the classroom or across the factory or across the world, may we take this glorious gospel and may you bring all those whom you want to to a saving knowledge of Christ. And may we all rejoice with them in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.